please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. Let's pray and then let's start reading our text. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. Heavenly Father, please uh, illumine our minds. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning. Whatever is said from the pulpit, um, Lord, please make sure that the right message gets across to each individual. We trust you, Lord, as our teacher uh, more than anybody else. So, Lord, please illumine our minds to what your scriptures tell us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Let's start reading in Genesis chapter 26, verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. I'll stop there for a second. Last week, after, our, uh, after the sermon, Richard Del Gallo came up to me, and he said, and last week, if you weren't here last week for last week's sermon, in last week's sermon, Isaac really messed up. Isaac uh, lied. He lost the moral high ground. He really, in lying, accused his hosts of being terribly violent and immoral people, uh, and he got rebuked by a pagan king. And that doesn't happen for the people of God. shouldn't happen for the people of God very often. We should always have the moral high ground. We should always know exactly what is uh, good and right, and we should be doing what is uh, good and right. But last week, Isaac did not do what was good and right, and so uh, a pagan, polytheistic king had the moral high ground, and he gave, he gave Isaac the good and, and right message. But then Richard comes up to me and says, did you notice in the next verse what happened? God blessed Isaac incredibly, a hundredfold. He blessed him so much right after he had uh, sinned so badly. And so I just want to take a moment to tell you this. Your blessings are not the result of your righteousness. And the whole book of Job is sort of about that. Job had an enormous amount of stuff, and everyone assumed, kind of rightly, that all of this wealth that he had was because he was so righteous. And then when Job lost everything, everyone assumed that he lost everything because he had committed some sort of great evil that he was hiding it, and, and only the Lord knew about it, so the Lord took everything away from him and devastated him completely because of his unrighteousness. And that was wrong. The whole book of the Job is, uh, is that, no, that is wrong. All of that is wrong. People are not necessarily always blessed because they are so righteous. Righteous living itself is a blessing. If you are a good, responsible hardworking person with integrity and you don't lie and cheat and steal and all these other things, I have a feeling you will be more blessed. You will probably, your home and your finances will probably be more stable. But when it comes to what's happening to Isaac here, that's a whole different ballgame. Isaac is blessed uh, in this passage to this point where everybody needs to be saying, what's going on here? You, you sow seed, okay, you get back uh, 10 times what was planted, fine. 20 times what was planted, that's a good bumper crop. But Isaac here is being blessed to the point that everybody needs to sit back and say, okay, what gives here? How in the world can he plant this much? And remember, at the very beginning of the chapter, this is a time of famine. It is a time of famine and drought, and people are leaving the area because there's not enough food. And yet Isaac plants his fields, his crops, and not only 
Uh, you know, in, in a drought season, you might expect to get back only double what you planted, only triple what you planted. But he's getting back how much? A hundred times what was planted? How in the world did that happen during a time of famine? That has got to be from the Lord. Got to be from the Lord. And so your natural inclination would be that, well, I suggest so righteous that he's getting all this. But as, as we see in the previous verses, uh, that is not necessarily the case. He is not getting all of this because he is so righteous. Why is he getting this then? It's because God is using him for a purpose. God is using you for a purpose. If you live a nice, righteous, stable life, probably you will end up feeling blessed because you won't have to... Um, spend money on, on things that you ought not to have spend money for. You know, I, I, I don't know if I can give an example, but you will probably live a more stable, even financially stable life if you are living a righteous life. That is not a guarantee. That is not a guarantee. But all things being equal, probably a righteous life uh, is more financially stable than an unrighteous life. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a guy who invested a dollar or invested a little bit of something and got back immediately, hundreds of times what he planted. That's only got to be from God. And if God gives him that kind of money, it has to be for a reason. God has got a purpose in Isaac's life. This isn't all just for Isaac to enjoy. God's got a purpose for all of this. It's an unnatural blessing. God must be behind it. And so if you were asking me, what is God up to here? What is the ultimate uh, meaning of all of this blessing in Isaac's life. I would only point you back to the covenant that God made with Abraham's father. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. And so um, Isaac certainly here has produced more food than just for his household, okay? Uh, I think God here, in the midst of this famine, you've got God's man, Isaac, God's man of the hour. Isaac and Isaac's family is the conduit for all of God's blessings into the world, everybody is supposed to be looking to Isaac, and God says, I'll give him something to look at. I'm going to give him an, an enormous amount of food in a time when people don't have very much food, and everybody's going to look to him. And Isaac can now be the center of an economy that's failing. Places where people should have been starving to death, people should have been vacating, people should have been suffering terribly, now they've got resources. There's something there to be bought. There's something there to be had. All of this sort of, to me, also foreshadows another patriarch named Joseph. There's a, there's a Joseph that is Mary's husband, but in the Old Testament, there's another Joseph. And this Joseph in the Old Testament, I'm telling you, he is an incredible guy. He's an incredible st study. Uh, we know more about his life than almost any other person in the Old Testament. And what happened with him? God unnaturally blessed him everywhere that he went. Why? Because a big-time famine was coming, a big-time drought was coming, a big-time catastrophe was coming, and God was going to take one of Abraham's descendants and say, I'm going to not just bless, I'm going to save the lives of nations around through one of Abraham's descendants. And I think that's also what's going on with Isaac here. Here, he is creating, he's got food and he's got economy, he's got substance here where everybody else is dwindling and losing everything that they've got. And so you would think that the Philistines would say, whew, at least we've got Isaac. At least if we run out of everything, at least we've got Isaac. At least Isaac's got something. 
At least he can save us. At least Isaac's God will save us, right? Isn't that, uh, shouldn't that be the logical response that they all have? Well, let's go ahead and keep reading. Verse 14, Isaac had so many flocks and herds and servants that the, the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech, the local king, said to Isaac, Move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. What? Is that how you should be responding? This is the guy that could save you all. Why in the world are you envying him? Why aren't you admiring everything that God is doing in his life? But their response is so typical, right? Whenever you see God blessing somebody, whenever you see God really working in somebody's life, are you automatically um, uh, moved to admire and to cozy up to and say, I want the blessings that you are, are receiving to spill over onto me. Most of the time, that is not what happens. Most of the time, the natural response is for you to sit there and grumble and say, why does he get all that stuff? Why does she get all that stuff? Why is their life so good? Why is their life so blessed? Why not me? I'm as good as they are. I'm probably better. Why do I do that? Why is envy always our first response? And envy is a terrible lack of faith. What envy says is, God loves that person more than me. God's got more purpose in that person's life than mine. God's got more to do with that person than me. God must think very low of me. Therefore, maybe I'll think very low of God. That is the human response. The, the sinful nature in our heart will push us to that uh, often. I'm, when I think about the Ten Commandments, okay, how many commandments can you name? What's number one, two, three, four? Okay, I'm not going to quiz you on that. But nine of the commandments, I think I can say this, Nine of the commandments are very, the effects of them are very visible outwardly. You kill somebody, obviously the evidence is going to point to you or people are going to have witnessed that you killed somebody, right? You commit adultery, another, at least one other person knows it, all right? You bear false witness, everybody heard your words, your, your lies. You start worshiping another idol, obviously everybody can see your idol that's there. But number 10, to me, is very curious. What is number 10? Remember, thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. Are you coveting something? I have no idea. I can't tell. I can't see into your heart. There is no evidence. There's no paper trail. There's no red on your hands. I can't see anything. But there's a commandment that tells you not to covet. And I think it's very interesting that God, you know, God's setting up a society, and these are the ten rules to set up the society, and nine of them have to do with outward behavior, outward actions that everybody else can see. But in that last commandment, he says, oh, and by the way, examine your own heart. While you're examining everybody else's outward behavior, all of their words and all of their actions, you are the only one who knows that you are coveting. Check yourself. Self-examine. And by the way, you'd almost think that it should be number one. Why? Because all of these other things start with you coveting. Most of these other things. What does it say? 
don't covet your neighbor's donkey, okay? If you covet your neighbor's, neighbor's donkey strong enough, what are you going to do? You're going to steal your neighbor's donkey. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. What's going to happen if you covet your neighbor's wife strong enough? You're going to make a pass, at least. Maybe commit adultery. You covet your neighbor's whole life and inheritance and property and everything strongly enough, what are you going to do? You're going to lie, cheat, and even kill to get it. Watch your heart. Covetousness, and when I was a kid, I remember we had the Ten Commandments on our wall, and I would read through them, and I would say, I think I'm good. I didn't know what a graven image was, um, and I didn't know what coveting was. But I felt like I'm not coveting. I don't know what coveting is. I'm probably not doing it. I was wrong. No doubt I was covering, coveting somebody else's chips and somebody else's Kool-Aid and maybe somebody else's bicycle and a little older, somebody else's girlfriend. No doubt I was coveting. I just didn't know what it was. And coveting is this feeling of deep envy and jealousy where all you can do or all your thoughts are wrapped up not just keeping up with the Joneses, getting everything the Joneses have, seeing their downfall, and then here you are with it all because you're going to do so much better with it, with your evil heart. Okay. The Philistines envied Isaac. And Isaac worshipped a different God than they did. You would think that one of their thoughts might have been, should we just convert? Should we just convert to his God? doesn't seem to have come up in their conversations about what to do with Isaac. No, actually, they should have admired, they should have emulated, they should have converted over, but instead they retaliated. And it went from just being envy to being a power struggle, being a power struggle here. And it became a power struggle between whose God is stronger. Remember, the, the Philistines worshiped this God called Dagon. And if you remember, when they stole the Ark of the Covenant in battle, I don't know if you remember that, they put the Ark of the Covenant, they stole the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites, and they put it in their, the temple to their God in front of Dagon as an offering, as something to, to incorporate into their temple. Do you remember what happened the next day? They all went to sleep, and then when they woke up the next morning, what happened? Do you remember that? Dagon had fallen over prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. And it only gets worse from there for the Philistines, okay? This is a power struggle, just like it is in Egypt going to be in Egypt later on. The uh, Philistines look at Isaac's life and all the blessings that he's gotten, and they said, you're going to be too powerful for us. We won't be able to control you. You're going to be in our land, and yet you're going to surpass us in uh, power and prosperity and greatness here. Um, what are we going to do? And if you remember, Moses wrote this to the Israelites who had experienced something like this, not in terms of wealth, but in terms of people. The Israelites in Egypt as slaves began proliferating greatly proliferating like rabbits. They were having so many babies that the Pharaoh finally said, we got to do something about these people. They're going to take us over. And finally, in the end, the power struggle got so bad that God had to intervene, and a lot of bloodshed had to happen. Pharaoh was very stubborn in all of his dealings with the Israelites. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go until God finally acted so big that Pharaoh said, out. Get out of here. 
That is how envy works. When you get so envious of people, you may want to control them, but when you can't control them, you've got to get them out. And maybe you'll be on the receiving end of that. I don't know. I don't think most of us have lived in such a place where here we are, Christians among non-believers, God's working in our lives, God's blessing us, blessing us to the point where they say, you got to get out of here. I don't know that most of us have, um, have been in that kind of a situation, but that kind of situation happens. That kind of situation happens. Look up the word pogrom and find out why. Look up the, the, the original term ghetto and find out why. When God blesses a certain people, these non-believers can't stand it. All right, let's keep going on. Verse 17. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar. Now he's been in the city of Gerar. They pushed him out to the valley of Gerar. So he's outside of town. He's way outside of town here now where he settled. And Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names that his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, the water is ours. So he named the well Essek, and the word Essek means quarrel uh, or, or dispute because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna because it, and Sitna means quarrel, the well, of, the well of disputing, the well of quarreling. Verse 22, he moved on from there and he dug another well and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, the Lord has finally given us room enough and we will flourish in the land. So Rehoboth means room enough, room enough. That's what it means. And near where my parents live, there's a, a church called the Rehoboth Baptist Church. And I think it's a great name for a church. There's room enough for you here at our church. There's room enough for everybody at Rehoboth Baptist Church. It's a great idea for a name for a church. I would never name a church that because then nobody knows what it means. Okay? Um, maybe, you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't name it after obscure Hebrew or Greek words that nobody knows what they mean. Maybe a little bit, something a little bit more obvious, like Faith Christian Church or something like that. Uh, nobody comes in and says, what does the name of your church mean? Pretty, pretty on the face there. It brings them in. And so it's, what's very interesting here is that uh, the Philistines, they sort of react in a typical way. But Isaac here is actually going to start regaining the moral high ground because he is going to be really living out the principles, some of the principles in the Sermon on the Mount. If, if you and I were Isaac, and Isaac, remember, He's a wealthy man. His father had his own personal army, and I'm guessing Isaac's got it now too. He's at least got enough farmers and servants and shepherds and everybody to mount a pretty good defense. But he doesn't use them for that. When everybody starts disputing, he says, all right, fine. You're going to quarrel with me again? All right, fine. How about if I just go way over here? Let's go over here. Have you found, can you, can, is there water there? Okay, you're not, are you okay? You're not gonna, you want this one too? No, no? Call it Rehoboth. Finally, there's room enough. Nobody's taking it from me. And I think that Isaac right here, right here is going to really live out this one principle in the Beatitudes called, uh, that, that says, the meek shall inherit the earth. He's being very meek here. Uh, he's, he, he's being determined 
He's being obedient, and he's very resolute because they filled in the wells, and he didn't just leave. He went and reopened the wells. I'm going to reopen the wells. You took away what my father had established. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to reopen it. You're not going to have the last name or last word on this. So he reopened the well. And then they said, but that water is ours. We're taking it. It's not yours. Uh, actually, whoever dug the well, isn't the well, isn't the water theirs? I don't, it, it, it ought to be Abraham's. It ought to be Isaac's. But they said, no, it's ours. So he says, fine, I'll go dig another one over here. And he digs, he, he digs that one out, and he's got fresh water, and they take it. And then he goes over here, and he finally digs a new well. Nobody takes it. So, okay, fine, I guess we're all, we're all fine here. The two things that, that are striking here is that maybe begrudgingly, probably not of a good heart, but he's still blessing the Philistines. He's blessed them by producing enough food for the region. But he probably wasn't giving it away. He's probably selling it. But he's still providing food for an entire region. And then also here during a famine, guess what else he's doing? He's providing water for a very dry region. And it may not be out of a kind and generous heart. It may be a little bit begrudgingly, but he's not making a war over it. He's still blessing the Philistines, even they don't like him. Every time he blesses them, they run him off some more. And if any of you have ever been involved in benevolence ministry, you might know what that feels like. For you to be generous to somebody and for them to be demanding back to you. It happens. But Isaac remains meek as he keeps going and he keeps going until finally... He's blessed them enough that they don't care about him anymore. <laughs> and they're not going to bother him anymore. Finally, there's room enough. Being meek is hard, though. Because if you're watching this from the outside, who won? Who's winning in all this power struggle here? Who's winning? It looks an awful lot like the Philistines are winning here. And None of us like to see the bad guys win. None of us like to see that. And yet God, in his wisdom, in his upside-down kingdom, in his leader-is-the-servant kind of mentality, what has he put forward to us? You want to inherit the earth? You want to win the whole earth? What do you do? You get an army, and you burn everything down, and you kill everybody, and you destroy everything? Is that how you win the earth? Who wins the earth? The meek. The meek inherit the earth. Let me prove it. Verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will, increase, I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. And just anytime you see in, in, the, in Genesis where it says he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord, don't just think of he, he stopped there and worshiped. Think of he stopped there, he built an altar, and he now became not just a, a worshiper, but also a, a proclaimer and a priest for the surrounding people. If I worship the one God, if you want to worship the one God, you come to me and I'll offer sacrifices to the one God on your behalf, and I'll tell you everything you need to know about the one God the one good God that I serve, okay? So he's not just, not just worshiping himself. He's proclaiming around that here is a center of worship of the one God. Let's go on to verse 26. 
Meanwhile, Abimelech had, had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, uh, his personal advisor, and Phi called the commander of, of his forces. Isaac asked them, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? I thought you never wanted to see my face again. Why are you here? Verse 28, they answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did not harm you, but uh, always treated you well and sent you away peacefully, and now you are blessed by the Lord. Really? Really? Is that what happened? Is that what happened? You sent me away peacefully? I, I will fully acknowledge that you didn't kill us all. I'll fully acknowledge that. But that you treated us well? Is that, is that what you're trying to say? Interesting. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they went away peacefully. Who won? Who won here? It's very interesting that Isaac never lifted a finger to harm any Philistine. In fact, he provided food for them, maybe not for free, but he provided food for them, and he dug out all the wells that they stopped up that weren't theirs to begin with, and they ran him off until he was so far away that they didn't care about him anymore. But who feels threatened here? They still feel threatened. They still feel threatened by the Lord's servant. They've run him off. He's never done anything to hurt them. And then, but yet they still look at him and say, we know in our hearts that his God is more powerful than our God. And if his God ever got it into his mind to send Isaac to kill all of us and take over everything, we know he could do it. So I'll tell you what we better do. We've ticked off Isaac and Isaac God's, Isaac's God so bad, and maybe I'm reading too much in this, but I don't think so. We're going to go and beg him not to come back and harm us. And when they get there, Isaac says, sure, I'll do that. Probably isn't necessary, but sure, I'll do that. In fact, I'll make the meal that we're going to sit around and make our covenant with. Amazing. The meek is definitely inheriting the earth. They were belligerent toward Isaac, and yet they were the one that came asking for a peace treaty. How odd. God won this whole event. And in your power encounters in the world, and I don't know what they will be, but any time that you are trying to be obedient to God and bring the kingdom of God into your home or your workplace or your school or whatever social circle you're in, whenever that happens and you start rubbing against people who do not want your influence there and they start elbowing you out, do not start a war. Do not become the belligerent. Take on the meek position. I promise you, God's word promises you, I believe, you'll win. And he'll win, ultimately. And now God is about to bless him even further. Look at verse 32. That day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we found water. He called it Sheba. And to this day, the name of that town has been Beersheba. Beer, this word beer, when you see that in the Old Testament, that, that's the word for a well. And Sheba means an oath, a promise, a covenant was made. So this well is named after the oath that we just made. 
the funny thing about it all is that the place was already called Beersheba. In Abraham's time, he already called that place Beersheba. So Isaac renamed the town the name of, that it had. How about if we all take over Gardner and then name it Gardner? What a strange thing, except that this well, this place, is named after an event. The event happened once before. Abraham and Phicol, the commander of the Philistine army, made an oath at this spot before, in the previous generation. And then, lo and behold, things just happen again and again and again. History does repeat itself. And Isaac said, we're going to call this place Beersheba, but not my father's Beersheba. Not the oath my father made, but the oath that I made with the Philistines. And so the faith sort of the kingdom of God advancement that Abraham had made, now Isaac makes it as well. And his faith, it's not just the faith of Abraham anymore now, it's the faith of Isaac. The meek truly shall inherit the earth. Now the earth is the Lord's. Everything belongs to Jesus. But even Jesus exemplified this principle to the greatest degree. He was killed by members of the Sanhedrin, Yet he redeemed a couple of members, at least, of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. Also, they were members of the Sanhedrin, complicit in the crucifixion. And Jesus says, I save you, I save you. And even later, uh, in the book of Acts, it is revealed uh, that a whole bunch of the priestly class leave the temple culture and come into the church culture. The people who had tried to drive Jesus out, he welcomes them in because... He won. He was crucified by Roman soldiers, Jesus was. And yet, when it came time to take the gospel, to break it out of just the Jewish culture and save some Gentiles, who does he take it to? Cornelius, a Roman soldier. He was disowned by Peter, and then God makes him the pastor of the Jerusalem church? Goodness, Jesus, this meek one, this one who, who wishes to reconcile, who wishes to make the oath, not condemn, not destroy, not punish, not retaliate, not get revenge. This man, Jesus, lowly Jesus, meek and mild, every tongue on heaven and earth proclaims he is Lord of all. So for you and me, and our little squabbles that we have down here, advancing the kingdom of God. He was meek unto death and victory. We can be meek to the point that we lose sometimes in order to ultimately win. God is not calling you to be a loser. He's not calling you to lose. He's calling you to win, but win a different way. Win a different way than the world does. He's calling you to win the harder way, not the way of the sword, but the way of the cross. Will you choose the victory of the cross or the defeat of envy, belligerence, and the sword? Choose the cross. Choose the cross like Christ did. You'll end up with new life and a victory that lasts forever. And you'll be able to then extend peace and reconciliation to anybody who was belligerent towards you. There's one other little statement in the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes. 
Blessed are the peacemakers. What will they be called? The children of God. I heard a pastor one time say, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called a chip off the old block. When you win by losing and extend reconciliation after a, an apparent defeat, you're being just like Jesus. He's the Son of God, the only Son of God. But whenever we do what he did, what he did, we remind people a lot of him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for showing us a better way to win. Help us, Lord, to not be belligerent, aggressive, even passive-aggressive. Help us to be meek. And give us faith to know the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek won't be losers forever. They'll only look like losers for a little while. But Lord, please, bring your kingdom. Bring your kingdom. In full power, awesome displays of peacemaking and love and reconciliation and forgiveness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.